Hello and welcome once again to Winter's Tales here on Aran Sound. This is Marty Ross, your resident Aran storyteller, sitting here in my state-of-the-art recording studio here in the island. Oh, it's great. It's a, it's a veritable pine wood studios of sound recording. And from my window here, I can see right over to the Ayrshire mainland. And that's appropriate because the story I'm beginning today is inspired by, well, some would say the greatest, the most celebrated writer ever to be associated with Ayrshire. Yes, that's right. Picture him, can't you? Dark hair, big dark eyes, problematic love life. Yes, you know the one. No, 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 hold on. No, 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 no. Not that one. No, 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 no. We've had Burns Night. And a little further along the line, you might just get my variation on Burns's most celebrated narrative poem. But that's for another day and another show. No, the writer I'm talking about here and now is Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. What? What's that you say? Poe, but, but hold on, if you know anything about Edgar Allan Poe, you know that he was American. Yes, well, that's true, but he had very strong Ayrshire connections by way of the Allen in Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, Poe was born in America, but while he was still an infant, his father, a, a drunk and unsuccessful actor, disappeared off the face of the earth. We still don't know to this day what happened to the missing father. And then Poe's mother, who by contrast was a very celebrated and successful actress, Elizabeth Poe, died. Died, but still very young, uh, leaving Poe an orphan. At that point he was adopted by a childless couple, John and Francis or Fanny Allen. They were living in Richmond, Virginia, but John Allen actually was from Ayrshire. Born in Dundonald, just across the water from where I sit now, just a, a wee bit inland from Troon. As a kid, I used to buy Batman comics in the newsagents in Dundonald on Sunday afternoons on the way to my grandparents' house at Barassi. Now, John Allen attended the grammar school in Irvine, where he was a, a classmate, in fact, of the future Scottish novelist John Galt. Now, as any native of the west of Scotland knows, this part of the country made its fortune, trading across the Atlantic with the American colonies and then, after that, with the independent United States. Irvine, in fact, having once been Glasgow's main seaport before the development of Greenock and Port Glasgow. John Allen grew up to be one of those transatlantic traders, a tobacco baron and more besides, bringing in tobacco, cotton and, yes of course, thereby profiting enormously off southern slavery. Let's not sweep that under the carpet or forget who was picking the cotton and tobacco and under what conditions. Young Edgar would have grown up in a household that had slaves doing all the domestic work around him. But this trade meant that uh, Scottish businesses could then trade our goods out the other way on the, on the return journey. And John Allen made such a success of this transatlantic traffic that he, he upped sticks altogether and left Scotland to settle in Richmond, Virginia. 
Thus he was in the right place to adopt with his wife Frances, little Edgar Poe, thus making him Edgar Allan Poe. And the Ayrshire connection doesn't end there. When Edgar was still a boy, the Allen family moved back to Britain for about a year. It wasn't a permanent move. John Allen was expanding his business and wanted to do a wee bit of networking over this side of the water. Edgar ultimately went for a period into a, a school at Stoke Newington, then just outside London. But before that, he spent a while in his adoptive father's native Ayrshire. Yes, little Edgar Poe trundling in his father's cart between Kilmarnock and Irvine and various other points in the vicinity, visiting and staying with his new father's Ayrshire relations. It's believed young Edgar may briefly have attended Irvine Grammar School, as his adoptive father had done before him, and that the original plan was in fact for Edgar to stay in Irvine for the full course of his education while his uh, adoptive parents headed down south to London for, for their business purposes. But in fact, little Edgar didn't want to be left behind. And Fanny Allen doted in the boy, so she insisted that he come with them in the journey, which was made uh, via a boat from Greenock uh, to Glasgow, and then cross-country to Edinburgh, and then down the east uh, coast of uh, England. That said, Edgar's brief time in Scotland seems to have been one of the few happy times of Poe's largely unhappy life, as testified to in at least one of his letters. We don't know that he ever came across to Aaron. No evidence of that. But of course he would have seen it across the water. Every time he looked out to the west... And in fact, at the end of his one novel, most of his great works are short stories, but at the end of his one novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, the hero is stranded on a craggy island which, to this reader at least, rather resembles Aaron, at least in its broad outline. So anyway, for, for me as a kid, loving the tales of Poe, his tales of mystery and imagination... It was a big deal to me that he, my, my hero as a child, had passed through the same landscape, passed along the very same roads as myself on a Sunday when we headed out to Granny and Grandpa's out by Troon. And then years later I performed at the likes of, well, the Edinburgh Fringe, the Glasgow Southside Fringe and at the London Horror Festival, my storytelling show, 21st Century Poe, in which I offered very modern, very... Scottish, very Glaswegian reinventions of Poe's classic tales. This is one of those stories, which I'm going to serialise for you over the next three weeks. I won't even tell you which famous story it's based on. If you know anything about Poe, it'll be obvious to you when I tell you the story is called Falling for the Ushers. Unlike Poe's original version, it's narrated by a character in the story. Let's listen to him while he begins. When you've been down and out in the artistic sphere for as long as yours truly... It's some small consolation if one uh, retains the ability to at least uh, 
gate crash. The soirees and celebrations of one's more uh, <coughs> successful artistic contemporaries. Thus it was that when I heard that my old chums from Glasgow School of Art, 20, no, no more than 20 years before, Roderick and Madeline Usher, the so-called terrible twins of British conceptual art, those perennial nominees for the Turner Prize, have always uh, a wee bit too edgy to actually win the damn thing. When I heard that they were... After years of wowing them in New York, Paris, Tokyo, you name it, that they were coming home, home to Glasgow, to put on their first show in, well, close to three years at Glasgow's very, uh, shishi, whited sepulchre gallery up the West End. Well, how could I, old chum that I was, resist the temptation invited or not to wander along on opening night. First I had to uh, talk my way past the bouncer in the door. A lovely fella, lovely fella. Faced like a, a great pink square sausage frizzling in a frying pan. Invite, I said. Ah, yes, uh, my uh, invite. Ah, uh, yeah, no, um... I left it at home, sorry, sorry. I left it in my other jacket, you know, still on the peg uh, at home, but, uh, but, but I'm, an, I'm an old friend. Yeah, an old friend, no, honestly, an old friend, friend of the family, Rod and Mad. We, we go way back, way back, back to art school. Picasso and Matisse and, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Brack, weren't half so friendly. Well, uh, uh, you don't get the reference. Uh, well, it, it doesn't matter. Look, look, look here. Take this. Buy yourself a pint when your shift's done. A pint of some pluck cream. So anyway, I talked and uh, ever so slightly bribed my way past the bouncer. What the hell? He wasn't the sort to care who was and wasn't in, in the art world. Inside, well, gathered there with a Creme de la creme, the cognoscenti of the Scottish art world. Plus not a few luminaries who jetted in specially for the occasion from, well, New York, Paris, Berlin, Tokyo, you name it. And they're on display were the latest fruits of the usher genius. Or pseudo-genius, or quasi-genius, or... Crypto genius, or whatever the heck it was, the ushers were selling. Suspended from the ceiling of the main hall of the gallery was a pickled hammerhead shark, its belly slit wide and all hollowed out. Hanging in chains from the hollowed belly was a chandelier. But where a commonplace chandelier might be decorated with umpteen crystal glass pendants, this chandelier was ornamented with hundreds upon hundreds of tiny pickled goldfish. And over this corner, 
Behold that icon of the Scottish landscape, a red-haired highland bull, stuffed and mounted on a low plinth. The back of the bull had been planed smooth, nailed to that back an oak tabletop, laid out with four impeccably bourgeois Sunday lunch place settings, a disembodied part of a plastic baby on each willow pattern plate. At the front end of the bowl, squiggles of pink neon had been placed in its pride open mouth, alternately blazing out the words Moo and Food Moo and Food And over here, projected on the white wall of the gallery, a black and white video image. A shot filmed with the camera looking vertically up through the safety net of a circus trapeze act, up towards the top of a tall, overlooking iron pole, high, high above the net. Standing on a tiny platform at the top of the pole, dressed in a white bridal gown, was... Yes. I recognised her instantly, even at that blurry distance. The figure of Madeline Usher. She swayed upon the tiny platform and then tottered and fell, spinning and spiralling downward through the air, the laces and folds of the bridal gown billowing about her, her fall bringing her closer and closer to the net. Swelling her larger and larger in the frame, she hit the net and bounced bounced, bounced, and then jump cut. Once again, Madeline was way up there on that high platform. Once again, she was tottering, falling, spinning, spiralling through the air, coming closer, closer to the safety net and to the camera, and then hitting it and bouncing, 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 and then jump cut. Once again, Madeline is up on the platform, once again she's tottering, falling, spinning and spiralling in. Well, you get the picture. And there in the centre of the main hall was the work of art most were truly there to see. The man himself, Roderick Usher. Roderick hardly seemed to have changed in the 20 years since I'd known him at art school. Tall. Elegant, dressed in sleek purple velvet. He had a great tumble of blonde that was almost white. Skin marble smooth and alabaster pale. Taut about sleek, angular cheekbones. Two dark eyes staring out as if from, from behind a white mask. As ever, Roderick Usher's figure suggested a, a tall, dark candle palely flickering in a draughty attic. And there was, in truth, a, a wee bit of a draught thereabouts. A draught of, well, hot air, more precisely. For I could see that Roderick was surrounded by a little gaggle of the attendant art critics. And as I crept closer, eavesdropping, do forgive me. I couldn't help picking up that the assembled commentariat weren't 
wholly impressed by the new show. Most vocal among them are a plump fellow I recognised as, yes, the chief critic for Spleen and Ideal magazine. Uh, yes, 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 Roderick, he was saying. The new work, it's well, it's uh, très, très amusant, oui, 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 in its uh, fitful way. But Roderick, haven't we seen it all before? This time-worn shock and sensation. Isn't it all a teensy winsy bit passé? A little, dare I say it, 1990s? I mean, your early shows, Roderick, yours and Madeline. One reeled out of those shows, feeling as if Western civilization were coming to an end. Now, one looks at the same old gestures and routine provocations being made for the umpteenth time and, well, frankly, what is left for an onlooker to do but, uh, titter with nostalgic affection and, uh, reach for the next of these, um, thank you, thank you, thank you, the next of these rather delicious, um, canopies. Uh, but honestly, Roderick, isn't it all just... Yet another tired remaking of something, frankly, we're not wholly sure we liked in the first place. Why you should know that great artists always do repeat themselves, replied Roderick, with the hauteur he customarily reserved for those who dared to criticise him. With the true visionaries, it's always the same essential statement again. And again and again, think of Mondrian, think of Rothko, think of Hitchcock, think of Poe. The same statement again and again. And why it's only hacks, hacks who are afflicted with the, the faddish vulgarity of doing something different every time. Hacks such as, why? Why, look over there, behold! If it isn't my old chum from art school. Yes, it is, isn't it, Ed? Yes, Ed Allen. No, 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 don't be bashful, Ed. Step forward, step forward, yes, step forward. And it was, of course, yours truly, those dark eyes, that demanding curl of Roderick's finger had fixed upon. Yes, Ed, yes, step forward, go on, come on, come on, come Now look, gentlemen, behold Fred Ed here. Ed, you see, exemplifies why the sort of thing your critical discourse seems to be recommending. Ed left art school more than 20 years ago. And for every one of those 20 years, and yes, yes, I have been keeping tabs, Ed. Forgive me, it's a, it's a, competitive streak in me. Ed has been trying something different. He started out with a yawn abstract painting. And then it was figurative painting. Then landscapes. Then a crude academic kind of sculpture followed by a mobiles made of rusted metal. A few years ago I believe it was a so-called um, graphic novels. This last year or two it's been, oh do forgive me Ed, I couldn't help noticing in the corner of a, of a rather down market gallery. It's been a uh, greetings cards, hasn't it? And at no point during any one of these multifarious transmutations 
Has Ed Allen here succeeded in forging for himself a single, coherent, unitary, artistic identity worthy of... Why, worthy of the attention of critical gentlemen like yourselves. But yes, step forward, Ed. Come on, you may at last have found the critical champion you seek in our friend here from Spleen and Ideal. Yes, step forward, step forward, and make your case, make a case for being, as it were, a hack of all trades. Twenty years ago, I'd never been able to put up much defence against Roderick Usher's line in withering sarcasm. I felt no more equipped to do so now, so instead of advancing, I crept bashfully, awkwardly away, slid my way deeper into the crowd, feeling now as if the, the eyes of all the art world's gatekeepers, its cultural policemen, were upon me. I moved on on through the various rooms of the whited sepulchre gallery, met at every turn with the meretricious chamber of horrors conceptualism that had made the usher's name. But then, in the gallery's furthermost room, I found what I was truly there to seek after all. For there, in the furthermost corner of that furthermost room stood Madeline Usher, Roderick's sister, his uh, twin sister, tall and slender and elegant like her brother, dressed in a sleek black evening gown, her skin like her brother's marble smooth, alabaster pale, so taut about her magnificent bone structure. Her hair, even more than her brother's, a great tumble of blondness that was almost white. And as with her brother, two dark eyes stared out from her pale face. But were the eyes of Roderick Usher, looked upon the world with a kind of withering disdain. The eyes of Madeline Usher looked on the world with a kind of helplessness, a reaching out for some helping hand that never quite arrived. Those eyes were roving the room with an even more acute desperation than usual, for I could see that she had been cornered in that furthermost corner by one of the the goggled-eyed little hangers-on, the, the Peter Laurie lookalikes that the usher's line in macabre conceptualism tended to attract. The little fellow was uh, blabbing away to her at that moment. Oh, Madeline, 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 oh, don't be put off by those dreadful, dreadful critics through there. And the new show, White, why, 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 it's the best yet. The experience of it, Madeline White, it's transcendental. No, 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 it's better than transcendental. It's, uh, it's, it's transplendent. The aesthetic effect, why, it's like, it's like slowly drowning in pig's blood within a burning abattoir. And I mean that in the most positive sense. And as Madeline's eyes roved the room looking for some 
excuse to get away from this little fellow. Her gaze settled upon me. I knew she recognised me, for I could see her mouth my name in a soft whisper. Ed. Ed Allen. And as she muttered so, I saw the pale fingers of her hand tighten about the bowl of the glass of complimentary red wine that she held. Tighten and tauten until the glass audibly squeaked and creaked and then cracked and shattered, spattering the white floor with shards of broken glass, splashings of red wine and spatterings of red blood. For I could see that shards of the broken glass had stuck in the flesh of her hand at several points. She clutched that bleeding hand and ran out, ran out past me, leaving behind her little goggle-eyed groupie who looked at the mess on the floor and declared, Blood! Real blood! Oh, oh, I'm, oh I'm not so sure about the, about the real stuff! Oh. Collapsing himself close by. But I followed Madeline. She wasn't hard to follow, for her bleeding hand had left a, a trail of blood spots and spatters all along the floor of the whited sepulchre gallery. I followed that trail through room after room after room. In one of the adjoining chambers, I passed a couple of the attendant art critics who were looking down at the mess of bloody spots and saying, Ah, yes, 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 now I, I do like this, yes, mm, mm. it's like a Jackson Pollock, only more uh, controlled, more austere in its palette. Uh, you know the Damien Hurst spot paintings, this is similar but with a more, more of a, a dialectical fluidity, don't you think, as Theodore Adorno would put it, or, or Woody, a better enemy than some of the stuff they've hung on the walls, certainly. But I hurried past them following that trail of blood spots and spatters, all the way to a white corridor at the rear of the gallery, all the way up to a, a white door in that white corridor, the white door of the ladies' toilet, a bloody handprint upon it. I pushed open that door at the far end of a long line of white sinks and the otherwise empty toilet stood Madeline running her bloodied hand under the cold tap. I, I hurried across. The water in the sink was already quite pink with blood. I grabbed her injured hand by the wrist, held it more firmly under the cold water's bite, and then, raising it, began, as delicately as I could, easing out of her flesh those glass shards she... Uh, flinched at my every touch, but let me continue until there was only one shard left. But this was the biggest of them all, a great triangular piece of broken glass embedded directly and deeply in the centre of her palm. When I uh, attempted to touch it, she drew her hand back sharply. Trust me, I said taking that wrist now in both my hands, and I lowered my teeth towards the outer edge of the glass. She tried to 
to, to draw the hand away again, but now I held it firm. Clinking teeth around the glass's edge. And then, then, <laughs> I drew out the glass, <clears throat> spat it clear, shoved her hand, fresh blood wearing where the shard had been under the cold water, holding it there a long minute and then raising it, raising it and pressing upon the wound until slowly, slowly, the bleeding eased. And as the bleeding eased, a pale smile crept onto Madeline's lips. What's the matter, Ed, she said. Aren't you going to, you know, kiss it better? For old time's sake? And oh, those old times between us were suddenly present tense as the smell of blood in that sink. Still holding her hands tightly, I, I lowered my lips. You, you bet I did. Towards that blood-edged opening in her so smooth beauty. But even as my lips brushed the cut, the toilet door flew open and in strode her brother, Roderick. <laughs> well done, dear sister, he declared. You've stolen the show. Unfortunately and alas, it's your own show, our own show you've gone and stolen. Suddenly all anyone is talking about out there is the literally bloody mess you've left all over the gallery floor and well I suppose they are equally divided out there between those who think it's part of the show and indeed the best thing in the show and those who are muttering among themselves about ah, ah, there she goes again. Poor Madeline, the Marilyn Monroe, the Sylvia Plath of the conceptual art scene. Another of a little, you know, uh, cries for help, is it? Oh dear me, did you hear about the shh, shh, did you hear about the incident at the Venice Biennale? But what they're not talking about is our work. The work we're here to present. The work we're here to sell. Madeline had pulled free of my grip. The thumb of her own other hand tight across the healing cut. Well, Roderick, she said, is it so wrong? So wrong that one of the two of us had a nerve out there to make a, to make a gesture, artistic or otherwise. That it a spot of honest human feeling, of honest human blood behind it. As opposed to those stunts and gimmicks and fear ground waxworks we've confronted them with elsewhere. Dear sister, said Roderick, those stunts, those gimmicks, those waxworks to which you refer, they are our work. Three years worth of work. Three years, you might recall, of you and I being shut up in a studio together, very slowly and surely driving one another 
insane. I suggest to you that if we're to make any kind of positive out of all those negatives, you clean yourself up and come out there on my arm all smiles and help me sell the new work like, like heaven knows it needs selling. No, Roderick, she said. No, no, I won't. I won't lie to those people. Not anymore. I can't, Roderick. Not now when they, when they know that they're being lied to. We know the new work's fake, hollow, gimmicky, spurious. And they know the work's fake, hollow, gimmicky, spurious. And I can't go through the, the pretense anymore, the masquerade. I can't, Roderick. I simply can't. I've had enough of it all. Darling sister, he said, you will come out there. And you will be on my arm and you will be all smiles. Even if I have to smack the wretched smile into your face myself. But as he reached forward to take hold of her, looking as if he might be ready then and there to deliver the first of the threatened slaps, I stepped between them. Th th that's enough, I said. That's more than enough. It was only now that Roderick Usher deigned to acknowledge my presence in the room. You, he said, what are you doing here? Did you see the sign on the door? That little image of the stick figure lady in the triangular skirt may not be the most exalted or innovative artistic statement in the place, but it symbolises loud and clear that this is the lady's toilet. So what are you doing in here with my sister? Well, um, you know, as artists, Roderick, I said, we're, we're, we're supposed to keep in touch with our feminine side. Keep in touch with your own feminine side and keep away from my sisters. Well, you're here, aren't you? I countered. My sister is my feminine side. And if I wouldn't let you near her 20 years ago, when you were at least a wee touch prettier, I'm certainly not going to let you near her now. My sister, for all her failings, is an artist of stature and of repute in the world. While you, friend Ed, what are you but what you always were? A tenth-rate hack, hardly an artist at all. And I won't have my sister associating with a tenth-rate hack. Bad art, friend Ed, might be catching like a bug. Now come on, Madeline. No, she said. I told you, Roderick, I, I, I made my decision. I'm not going out there. I'm not facing those people anymore. I'm, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going home. Yes, home, only, um... Ed, Ed darling, I, I don't think I'm up to making it on my own. Would you, could you help me help take me home for old time's sake? What, ah, uh, take you, take you, um, home, ah. Uh, Yes, 
yes, Madeline. Um, oh, of course, yes. Um, uh, 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 here, Madeline, my, 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 my jacket. Here, um, take it. We'll, um, uh, yes, uh, head out the back. Um, we should have get a taxi down. Um, what's it? Uh, Woodlands Road. Yes, yes, of course. Yes, take you home. Yes, yes. Um, come on, Madeline. Yes, yes, this way. And even as I let her out, I heard Roderick at her back. No, Madeline. No, he was saying, listen, listen, I wouldn't allow this 20 years ago. I won't allow it now. Madeline, come back. We have a show to sell. Madeline, come back. Madeline. 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 But we walked out of there and left him if you'll pardon the pun, mad and alone. And there we leave part one of Falling for the Ushers. Join us here next time on Winter's Tales for the second part of the story, in which Madeline Usher takes our protagonist to a very modern, very Glaswegian version of the famous, or should I say, infamous House of Usher. <laughs>